And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. It is another special edition, another past tense current events edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. My name is Cam Edwards, and this week we're going to take a look at a 1971 book called Gun Control, a written record of efforts to eliminate the private possession of firearms in America. Authored by a gentleman named Robert J. Kukla, who actually uh, uh, got involved in the Second Amendment issue in 1958 uh, when he began his uh, time as the Legislative Affairs Director for the Illinois State Rifle Association. He eventually uh, became a director of the National Rifle Association and uh, was a guy who was uh, you know, right there on the front lines of those first fights. Uh, over gun control in the 1960s. I say the first fights over gun control. You really go back to 1934 and the uh, National Firearms Act and uh, legislation in 1938. Uh, but but that was, uh, you know, all things considered, while it was the sort of the, the, you know, the camel's nose under the tent and it was the first federal legislation to uh, deal with our right to keep and bear arms, it was fairly narrow in scope. Uh, and in scale, particularly when you look at what it is we're dealing with today. So at the federal level, we just saw uh, the House of Representatives pass two gun control bills, the first gun control bills that they've passed in a matter of decades. Uh, one was H.R. Uh, 8. This is, quote unquote, universal background checks. Uh, the other was H.R. Uh, 1121, which supposedly closes the so-called uh, Charleston loophole. There is no Charleston loophole, but uh, current federal law allows for the transfer of a firearm from a federally licensed firearms retailer to the purchaser uh, after three business days. Uh, If that background check has uh, not come back, the dealer can, may choose to sell that firearm. Uh, This would extend that uh, waiting period to 20 business days, business days, by the way, not calendar days, business days, which could result uh, in basically an infinite loop of uh, delays for uh, an attempted purchaser, somebody who uh, again maybe you know legally allowed to buy a gun, but maybe have a uh, has a name that is uh, shared with somebody who is not. There are a lot of false positives in these uh, Nick's denials, and and a gun owner could now get caught up uh, in uh, in this sort of you know endless loop of uh, delays where they could not legally. Purchase a firearm. And gun control advocates are fine with that. Uh, their their concern is not the illegal gun owner. Their concern is the gun, right? So any anything that would actually delay or perhaps even deny uh, the, uh, the 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 lawful transfer of a firearm, they're all in favor of. Uh, and these are just the bills that were passed in Congress. We've also got. At the state level across the country, uh, numerous, quote-unquote, universal background check bills that are opposed, by the way, by law enforcement, all kinds of law enforcement. In New Mexico, we recently saw uh, universal background check legislation clear the legislature very contentiously, going to be signed into law by the uh, governor there in New Mexico. You've had over 20 counties in the state declare themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuary counties. You have well over 20 county sheriffs across the state of New Mexico that say that these laws are unenforceable. Uh, and even if they were enforceable, they would not enforce these laws. The uh, chief of police in Albuquerque came out in favor of 
the background check bill in New Mexico. Meanwhile, the Police Officers Association, the rank and file there in Albuquerque, has come out in opposition to these bills. Then we've got bills dealing with uh, bans on uh, magazines over 10 rounds, uh, bans on semi-automatic firearms uh, that would deemed to, to be, quote-unquote, assault weapons. Uh, in New York State, you've got a, uh, a safe storage law that now uh, forbids any firearm from being uh, left uh, unlocked and, and within reach if there are individuals under the age of 16 in that household, uh, which, by the way, completely contradicts the Supreme Court's decision in the Heller case in 2008. But, but we are now living in a time Probably the uh, a, a biggest challenge to our right to keep and bear arms that gun owners have faced since the 1960s, which is the focus of Robert Kukla's book, Gun Control, which again came out in 1971, three years after the passage of the Gun Control Act of 1968. And Kukla's book relies extensively on congressional testimony and congressional hearings. This is, uh, as well as a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the ad agencies that got involved in the media blitz for gun control back in the 1960s. It was fascinating. I, I, I learned about this book from uh, my friend Tom Gresham, uh, who's the host of Gun Talk, and he had tweeted out a quote from this book, and it was the first time I had heard about it. I love old books, as you know, so I found a copy online and, and started reading this, and I was immediately struck First of all, by, by how little things have changed. So one of the things that uh, we see in this book right off the uh, get-go uh, is the fact that in 1963, before the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, there was a congressional uh, hearing, a congressional committee that was looking at juvenile delinquency. And uh, this was the Dodd Committee. And uh, uh, Senator Dodd uh, from Connecticut uh, had the idea of uh, the bill that he was pushing at the time uh, would have dealt with mail order sales of firearms and would not have banned mail order sales of firearms, but it uh, it would have required uh, individuals who lived in states where there were gun licensing laws. If you were buying a gun from mail order, you had to uh, tell your local police chief, or actually the the, the uh, mail order shop had to send a letter to your local uh, police chief. Uh, letting them know, hey, somebody's buying this gun via mail order. Uh, let us know if there's a reason why they shouldn't buy this gun. It was, um, it was again, it was not a ban on uh, on interstate sales. It was not a ban on transfers. It was, it was nothing of the sort. Uh, it was a pretty narrowly tailored bill that, uh, uh, I, you know, pretty much every sportsman's group at the time. Uh, felt like they could live with. There were tweaks that they wanted to make, but it, this was not a bill that uh, concerned a, 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 a ton of uh, gun owners at the time. Uh, and then the assassination of John F. Kennedy happens in November of 1963, and the tone of the debate changes. The the uh, actual subject of the legislation changes. The bill gets expanded greatly. Uh, and all of a sudden now we see the same media frenzy that we've witnessed over the past couple of years against the Second Amendment and against the NRA and against gun owners, that was directed towards those same groups in, in late 1963 and early 1964. For example, CBS News runs a hour-long quote-unquote documentary called Murder in the Second Amendment. 
in which, by the way, they completely misrepresent the positions of the NRA uh, and, and declare that you know there's all kinds of uh, additional gun control laws that are needed. As the 60s, you know, uh, moves on here, uh, you get into 1964, 1965, 1966, you've got the uh, shooting at the University of Texas, uh, where uh, individual, I won't name his name, but climbs to the top of the uh, University of Texas bell tower, ends up uh, shooting dozens of individuals, is actually stopped, by the way, with the help of armed citizens, not that the media really focused on that, but that was another uh, 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 opportunity uh, for uh, gun control advocates to 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 really push gun control, and then in 1968, with the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, there is just this massive wave of support for gun control, and the Gun Control Act of 1968 gets rammed through Congress, uh, albeit in a watered down fashion. So Kukla's book, Gun Control, really takes a look at, at, at the entirety of the 1960s. It is a very long and exhaustively detailed book, so I, I, can't, I can't go through the entire decade. Uh, but what I wanted to do uh, for this podcast is focus on 1967, the year before the Gun Control Act of 1968 was passed, because we are right now in 2019... Uh, not in a position where gun control is going to become law at the federal level. President Trump has already said, I'll, I'll block these bills if they get to my desk. But next year is an election year, and it is entirely possible. In fact, I, I would say it is a lock that if an opponent of the Second Amendment gets elected president, uh, if Democrats, uh, in the makeup that they currently enjoy in the House, uh, were to take back the Senate, we would see an immediate push for the most extreme uh, gun control measures going forward. And it would not stop with one bill or two bills. Those would be the quote-unquote good first steps, and then they would move on from there. So heading into 67, again, you had a couple of high-profile incidents, including the one at the University of Texas. Haruska, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Kukla uh, also writes about a, uh, another incident uh, November 13th, 1966, Mesa, Arizona. Four women and a little girl, he says, were shot to death by a youth using a 22 caliber pistol. It was reported that he had been planning a mass murder for three months ever since Chicago nurses had been knifed to death uh, months earlier. This was uh, uh, another attack, not involving a firearm, by the way, but, uh, uh, but still very much used by the anti-gun media uh, to, uh, to talk about uh, the need for more controls. So this individual in Mesa, Arizona in, in 1966 said, quote, I just wanted to get myself a name. I wanted to be known. And I found that quote, first of all, uh, really disturbing. But again, when you talk about how little things have changed, we see the same motivation right now. Uh, in a lot of these mass murderers and a lot of these uh, spree killers. There is a desire for fame, and if they can't achieve fame, then infamy uh, is the next best thing. We have this subculture that is almost worshipful uh, of these individuals, going back to the killers at Columbine, uh, and individuals who you know now sort of view these deaths as, as some sick uh, a sport, and they're trying to get a higher score than the last killer. And back then, just as today, the media really doesn't want to talk about 
their coverage and how this might lead to uh, incidents like this taking place. Instead, again, they would much rather blame the legal law-abiding gun owners uh, in this country. So that's sort of the setup, uh, what happened in 1966. So Congress gets into session in 1967, and Senator Dodd's latest piece of legislation is uh, called Senate Bill 1. There was also an amendment uh, that uh, made Senate Bill 1 even worse, called Amendment 90, that was offered by LBJ, the president at the time. And in uh, early 1967, we saw a couple of other developments as well. So just a couple of weeks after this Senate bill was first introduced, I think before even hearings were were held, uh, the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice released its report, The Challenge of Crime in a Free Society. As Kukla writes, the ultimate outrage of that report was contained in its official recommendations with respect to gun control law. The commission recommends each state should require the registration of all handguns, rifles, and shotguns. If after five years, some states still have not enacted such laws, Congress should pass a federal firearms registration act applicable to those states. So in other words, uh, we're going to give the states the opportunity to do this themselves. If they don't, then the federal government is going to step in and, 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 and pass a uh, federal firearms registration legislation. This was, uh, by the way, just a couple of years after the Attorney General uh, had told uh, members of the House Committee on Ways and Means, uh, quote, this legislation will not force sportsmen to register their guns and it will not prevent them from carrying their guns. That was uh, in regards to a bill called Senate Bill 1592, which had been offered the year before, 1966. Uh, Ten days after the Attorney General uh, made that statement, by the way, he became the chairman of the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice. Yeah. Uh, Kukla writes, another noteworthy event occurred in February of 1967. The formation of an anti-gun lobby to be headquartered in Washington, D.C. was announced. Its avowed purpose was to campaign for continuously more restrictive gun legislation. This was uh, from the Chicago Daily News, February 25, 1967. A lobby to champion gun control legislation at federal, state, and local levels has been established. Its first task may be lining up support for President Johnson's proposal to restrain the sale of firearms. Illinois Treasurer Adlai E. Stevenson III and New York Mayor John Lindsay have been elected to the board of directors of the new group. It is known as the National Council for a Responsible Firearms Policy. Yeah. Just like today, it's gun safety. Back then, it was just responsible firearm policy. Headed by James V. Bennett, former director of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons, J. Elliott Corbett, a former Chicagoan who is an official with the Methodist Board of Social Concern, credited with a major role in organizing the group. As Kukla writes, the article in the Chicago Daily News went on to say how President Johnson had received 50,000 letters against Senator Dodd's previous gun control bill, that's Senate Bill 1592, and less than 20 letters in favor of the gun control bill. And in typical fashion, he writes, the article offered its readers as the only reason for the opposition to this gun control bill the following explanation. John Coggins, an Internal Revenue Service attorney, was asked about the NRA's contention that gun control laws are unconstitutional because they infringe on the right to bear arms. Quote, That's part of the propaganda against firearms legislation, he said. There's no merit to it whatsoever. Courts have held that it protects a state militia and not private gun bearers. 
Also around this time that the first National Gun Control Group was established in 1967. By the way, that is, uh, I believe, I know it's before the NRA's Institute for Legislative Action, the lobbying arm of the NRA actually began. Um, I think it's about 10 years before uh, NRA's Institute for Legislative Action actually began. So you already had, you know, it's funny because we talk about, or or, or the media talks about, uh, you know, the NRA and the big bad gun lobby. And when you actually look at the history of this, the, it was the, the, the gun control groups uh, forming in the 1960s and then the NRA in response taking a more proactive uh, role in, in lobbying as a result of the gun control movement. Uh, and I think the media today, when they're you know, kind of going through the history of the gun control debate, I think they get this backwards. So, so shortly after uh, this uh, National Gun Control Group gets established, uh, one of the first real popular anti-gun books comes out. It's called The Right to Bear Arms by a guy named Carl Bacall, uh, B-A-K-A-L. And uh, Carl Bacall's assertion, well, he had a lot of them. Uh, basically, gun owners uh, had you know little tiny willies, and uh, it was all a matter of compensation. Uh, it, this, is, this is just a quote from, uh, from the book. I asked a psychiatrist friend, Dr. Alfred Siegman, to expand on the thesis which sees guns as sex symbols. Is such symbolism attached to the gun because of its size and shape, I asked? Well, not only for that reason, he said. It pierces, it penetrates, it discharges, much like the penis. He said the idea of being masculine is perceived as involving the use of penetrating, aggressive, hurting things. And there may be people who, because of the need for particular reassurance about their masculinity, resolve their problems by means of guns. I think this is the earliest uh, insult that I've seen. Like the, the, the uh, you got a tiny Peter uh, insult. That's why you're a gunner. I, 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 I can't predate it <laughs> before 1967, but for at least 50 years, uh, gun control advocates have been using this as one of their arguments as to uh, why gun owners are just stupid. Yeah. Uh, there was also a, an argument that, um, oh, here we go. This is also from uh, Carl Bacall's book. Uh, in a letter to me, Another doctor, uh, Dr. Stickney, said that he has noted a, quote, shy, inarticulate aestheticism in many hunters. He's also been impressed by the sadistic love many hunters have for the animal victim, as well as the totemic and latently homosexual quality of, say, big southern deer hunts. In his manuscript for the book, Dr. Stickney also wonders if there's something homosexual about a hunt. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, mind you, but, uh, you know, if you uh, if, if you like to hunt, <clears throat> chances are you're gay. I mean, again, this was the we, – we still see these types of insults directed against gun owners today as if being gay is an insult, but it's meant to be, right? It's meant to be an attack on someone's masculinity or an attack on, on who they are. Uh, and, and, again, this has been going on for 50-plus years. Years, these same insults. Now, you want to talk about uh, media bias. Let's talk about media bias. So, NBC News in 1967 had a, uh, a special program that they uh, put together with the help, by the way, of, uh, of Carl Bacall. He served as a consultant uh, for this one hour NBC special called Who's Right to Bear Arms? which was broadcast March 19th, 1967. That was during the first week of hearings on Senate Bill 1. This, this gun control bill in 1967, which ultimately would morph into the Gun Control Act of 1968. Um, the Manchester Union Leader newspaper in New Hampshire 
uh, review this. This is a conservative paper, by the way, and, and this is what they had to say. The most outrageous hour of political propaganda ever aired on television was the NBC News Inquiry report called Who's Right to Bear Arms, which was broadcast Sunday evening, March 19th. This unobjective epic was shown 6.30 to 7.30 Eastern so as to catch children and little old ladies, too. The title arrogantly challenges the validity of the U.S. Constitution, as if the right did not exist for all citizens, but those who prove themselves unworthy. The impression, aimed for throughout and intended to be left in the minds of viewers, isn't it simply awful that a U.S. citizen may own a firearm? Quick, we must do something like they've done in foreign countries. Huh. Again, not much has changed, right? Why can't we be more like England? Why can't we be more like Australia? Why can't we be more like Japan? They never ask, why can't we be more like Mexico? Which is our neighbor to the south. I mean, it's a lot closer to us than Japan or Australia or, or England. Uh, and they've got one gun store in the entire country in Mexico. It's located on an army base in Mexico City. And if you want to exercise your right to keep and bear arms as uh, guaranteed in the Mexican Constitution, you have to go to that one gun store in the army base where after uh, a very careful vetting process, you are allowed to uh, purchase a uh, twenty-two caliber rifle or up to a thirty-eight caliber revolver. And that's it. That's what you can get legally. And Mexico's homicide rate, by the way, about five times higher than that of the United States with all of those gun control laws on the books. But they don't want to talk about Mexico. They, they want to talk about these countries that really have never had a, a strong tradition of firearms ownership, at least not compared to the United States. Uh, have never really had a, a strong tradition of um, the right of self-defense. I mean, well, I say never. Uh, the, the, you know, in English common law, you actually do have a right of self-defense, but they've moved away from that uh, over the past 150-plus years. And yet somehow we're supposed to be just like those other countries. Uh, the NBC News special in 1967 opened up with these words. We are a gun-loving, gun-toting, gun-shooting nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then cut to uh, white supremacists shouting, uh, there's a race war coming and you'd better get ready. You'd better get a gun. Yep. Uh, after the commercial break. Uh, the program comes back with uh, uh, the, the reassuring words, Robert Kukla writes from NBC, this is an inquiry. Its subject is, are guns too readily available to the wrong people? This program is not about the 30 million hunters, target shooters, and others who use guns legally and properly. Yeah, actually, it, it is. It is about that. Uh, moderator uh, later on in the program, guns of all kinds are easily and usually legally available in this country to almost anyone who has the money to buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, interviewed neo-Nazis. They interviewed members of the KKK. They didn't seem to interview too many members of the National Rifle Association. Uh, the moderator asks uh, uh, th- this question at one point. Uh, Do we need stricter gun control laws? Those who oppose such laws say the Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the right of every citizen to bear arms. As a result, it's possible in this country for a blind man to buy a gun legally, a narcotics addict, someone who is mentally ill in most states a minor. You can clip a coupon from a magazine and send away for guns like these. Google says the NBC News special... Whose right to bear arms contained all of the classic ingredients necessary to brainwash the American public. It employed the most basic propaganda techniques, 
sensationalism, smear by association, misrepresentation, and a continual appeal to the emotions. The program throughout associated the National Rifle Association with the Nazis, the KKK, and the Minutemen, which were a uh, sort of paramilitary organization uh, in the 1960s. Viewers were given the general impression that America was swarming with Nazis, dope addicts, nuts, kooks, and the mentally deranged, all of whom shared the interest of the legitimate sportsmen and firearms, and all of whom vigorously opposed Senator Dodd's bill. Not a single argument he writes was properly presented as to the true reasons for the tremendous national opposition, which was responsible for the failure of Congress to enact Senator Dodd's previous attempt at gun control legislation. The moderator dismissed that key issue with a rhetorical question which he both asked and answered. Again, do we need stricter gun control laws? Those who oppose such laws say the Second Amendment to the Constitution guarantees the right of every citizen to bear arms. Kugla says, with such a representation of the position of the legitimate citizen concerning national firearms legislation, there should be little cause to wonder why public animosity was engendered and why many people began to think of the National Rifle Association as some kind of anachronistic relic of the pre-revolutionary America whose members went charging around with a Kentucky rifle in one hand, a copy of the Second Amendment clutched in the other. He says it was many months later that a most interesting report was published in the form of an expose written by a uh, nationally syndicated columnist named Drew Pearson uh, and his colleague Jack Anderson. Uh, Their column opened in the following manner. Locked in the files of the Senate Juvenile Delinquency Subcommittee is evidence that the television networks have helped to spread violence in this country. This may well have contributed to the recent wave of assassinations. The column continued, Juvenile Delinquency Committee documents fix the blame squarely on the networks, which in pursuit of higher ratings have filled the video tubes with sex and violence. Staff studies accuse the networks of putting profits ahead of public responsibility. Yeah. These studios, the column went on to say, written more or these studies rather, written more than uh, six years ago, were suppressed, ironically, by the same Senator Tom Dodd, Democrat from Connecticut, who introduced the gun control bill to curb violence. His staff felt violence could be reduced by restraining the TV networks from teaching it to children. But Dodd did not want to embarrass the powerful networks. He went after guns instead. Hmm. Another column by uh, Pearson and Anderson uh, made the allegation against Senator Thomas Dodd that during his investigation of violence on TV, he accepted personal gifts and campaign contributions from officials of the NBC and Metro Media Networks, and both networks were spared the embarrassment of hearings. Interesting. You know, again, uh, we talk today about the, uh, the role that the media plays in sensationalizing these types of crimes as, as well as uh, glamorizing and, and to one degree or another even, even uh, celebritizing uh, these killers. And apparently back then that was a concern as well, but one that the anti-gun politicians did not want to focus on or even really talk about. So as the year went on and the debate continued, you saw more attacks on the NRA, more uh, defenses of the right to keep and bear arms uh, from politicians like John Dingell, um, uh, whose wife, by the way, uh, his widow, uh, Debbie Dingell, recently argued in favor of H.R. 8, uh, Universal Background Check Bills, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in 1967, her late husband has said, quote, the President's Commission on Crime has recommended registration of all firearms, including shotguns, rifles, and pistols in the country. The Commission also recommended that where states in five years have not enacted a registration law dealing with such firearms, the federal government shall do so. And so we see the forces at play here. 
They include the concerted effort to achieve this legislation as a first step in the words of one of the proponents of this other body. Speaking of the, uh, the Senate. The very ineffectiveness of each step will be an invitation to newer and more repressive actions to further disarm and harass the law-abiding citizen while the criminal goes on his way, armed, capable of striking at the time, place, and in the manner he finds best against his governmentally disarmed victim. We hear that same talk today about uh, HR8 and universal background checks. This is uh, not going to stop uh, every violent crime, the advocates of these laws say, but it is a good first step. They don't talk about what that next step is going to be, right? They don't talk about what the second step is going to be after the first step because the second step involves firearm registration and licensing. Uh, and they won't call it firearms registration any more than they'll call it gun control. They call it gun safety, even though it's gun control. And they will call firearms registration a, uh, a permit-to-purchase system so that you apply for permission uh, from the federal government to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. And, uh, and that permission slip will then serve as registration because every time you want to purchase another firearm, you have to get another permission slip from the government. At a hearing not long after, uh, Carl Bacall, the author of that uh, book, The Right to Keep and Bear Arms, and uh, the consultant on the NBC special, Who's Right to Bear Arms, uh, said this by the National Rifle Association. said, quote, in opposing such preventative laws... I like the gun control bill before the, uh, the, the Congress. The National Rifle Association is a threat to our internal security and a menace to our peace and well-being. So I say it is about time that we stopped listening to the lies of this lobby and stopped watching the slaughter in our streets and homes. It is about time to begin listening to reason and truth instead of to hypocrisy and hysteria. It is time to heed the voice of the people, the majority of the people, instead of the voice of an irrational, irresponsible, selfish special interest minority seeking only to profit at the expense of the public good. Now, at this point, it's worth actually considering some crime statistics, okay? Uh, 1960, the uh, violent crime rate, according to the FBI Uniform Crime Reports in the United States, 160.9 violent crimes per 100,000 people. Uh, homicide rate of 5.1 per 100,000 people. Homicides actually declined uh, throughout most of the early 1960s, 4.8 in 1961, 4.6 in 1962 and 1963. Then in 1964, uh, it starts to tick back up again, 4.9 uh, homicides per 100,000 people, back up to 5.1 by 1950, uh, 1965. By 1967, the homicide rate was uh, 6.2 per 100,000 people. The violent crime rate had climbed from 161 to 253.2 violent crimes per 100,000 people. And the message from gun control advocates was, listen, if we pass this bill, this will make us safer. If we pass this legislation, crime will drop. If we pass this legislation, which is not, again, aimed at the legal law-abiding gun owners, it's only aimed at the violent criminals, we can put a dent in violent crime. That did not happen. So I gave you the crime stats for 1967. 253.2 violent crimes per 100,000 people. Homicide rate of 6.2 per 100,000 people. Five years later, 1972... It be four years. Actually, we'll do 1973, five years after the passage of the Gun Control Act of 1968. Uh, violent crime had increased to 417.4 violent crimes per 100,000 people, so it almost doubled since 1967. 
Homicides had climbed from 6.2 per 100,000 people to 9.4 per 100,000 people. So maybe that just wasn't enough. Maybe we got to go 10 years, give it, give it 10 years to take effect. So 1978. Uh, violent crime up again to 497.8, 498 violent crimes per 100,000 people. Homicide rate of 9 uh, per 100,000 people. And um, it did not get any better. Violent crime in this country, it kind of dipped, but it never got close to what it was in the early 1960s until, until you get into the late 1990s, the early 2000s. So, again, violent crime in 1967, 253.2 violent crimes for 100,000 people. We're not quite there yet. But in 2017, violent crime had declined from a, a, a peak uh, in uh, the early 1990s, uh, 757 violent crimes for 100,000 people in 1992. We're back down to 394 violent crimes for 100,000 people. Uh, homicide, which peaked in 1980 at 10.2 homicides per 100,000 people, by 2017 was down to 5.3 homicides per 100,000 people. That, that's right. We had fewer homicides per capita in 2017 than we had in 1967, when the rising homicide rate was the impetus for the Gun Control Act of 1968. We have fewer homicides per capita today than we did 50 years ago. And yet gun control groups, they've not changed their script. They're still talking about the epidemic of gun violence and how we can reduce this gun violence by, again, more laws that are aimed at legal law-abiding gun owners. Literally nothing in their argument has changed, only the policies, the specific policies that they're pushing. So also in 1967, we saw the emergence of this sort of dual-track strategy where you push for gun control legislation at the federal level as well as at the state level. Uh, and in Illinois, the then-Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago uh, began pushing a gun registration bill for the state of Illinois. This was a contentious issue in the state legislature. He also decided at the same time he was going to push a local measure, which would have required um, uh, every registration of uh, or registration of every uh, handgun, rifle, and shotgun uh, in the city of Chicago. Now, interestingly enough, there were already uh, in Chicago a lot of gun control laws on the books, including a pistol purchase permit, which had been on the books for several decades. As Kukula writes. Uh, Typical of the administration of the Chicago Pistol Permit Ordinance was the case of a Chicagoan, a man in his early 40s, married the father of three children, and having a continuous record of employment with the same company for 15 years. The applicant also happened to be a skilled competitive target shooter who had requested a permit for the purchase of a highly sophisticated single-shot .22 caliber Swiss-made Olympic-style target pistol, which he intended to fire in international pistol matches. He was denied. He was denied could not get the single-shot twenty-two pistol. Um, he protested in a letter to the superintendent of police, and he got the following response. We follow a policy of the police department of not issuing a permit to purchase unless the applicant can show a strong need for the weapon, in addition to the fact that he is a person of good character. Apparently, in your case, you did not succeed in convincing the personnel in our records and communications division that you had a need for the weapon in question. 
we think this policy is wise, for there are too many people purchasing weapons that really don't need them. The weapon can get into the wrong hands. Individuals may be injured through careless or misuse of the weapon, and it may be stolen from the person who owns it. So again, under this permit-to-purchase system, which, by the way, you're hearing gun control advocates call for nationwide today, the state of Chicago, just like the state of New Jersey, just like uh, New York City, just like uh, a lot of other anti-gun jurisdictions around the country, can deny you for any reason or no reason whatsoever your right to keep and bear arms. And that's not a bug. That is a feature for the gun control groups. Uh, by the way, when this campaign was going forward in Illinois, they had the help of uh, advertising agencies uh, there in the area, including Metro Media, who uh, put together a bunch of uh, free ads. And they called this, they didn't call it a gun control bill. They didn't call it a firearms registration bill. They called it a gun responsibility bill. Only you can pass the gun responsibility bill. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, Kukla uh, talks about uh, Chicago newspapers blossoming with support for the mayor. Honest reporting was forsaken. Reporting for a purpose was rampant. Gun advertising was sensationalized by indicating machine pistols were for sale cheap, where although the picture of a machine pistol was shown, in fact, only the stock of that type was for sale for fitting to a perfectly legal U.S. thirty caliber carbine. It, it's, it's true, by the way. He actually provides the the advertisement in question, where it's a 30 caliber carbine paratrooper stock that is for sale for $25, and yet uh, the um, newspapers uh, say a paratrooper's carbine is available by parcel post for a mere $24.95 just in cash or money order. It wasn't the gun that was for sale, it was the stock. So the media misinformation uh, was rampant 50 plus years ago as well. Kukla says, without a doubt, the most professional assistance given Mayor Daley's gun registration legislation was the advertising campaign by the Edward H. Weissen Company Advertising Agency of Chicago. That agency, Kukla says, prepared superb posters on behalf of the gun registration bill. The posters were designed to focus attention on the dangers associated with firearms and urge viewers to contact their legislative representatives in the state capitol and request that, the, uh, that they enact the gun registration bill into law. Reportedly, the posters have been prepared free of charge for the Mayor's Citizens Committee for the passage of the Gun Responsibility Bill. More than 3,200 transit cards for subway, bus, and railroads, as well as one- and two-sheet posters, space for the campaign donated by Metro Media Incorporated and Trans Displays Incorporated. The same Metro Media, by the way, which apparently was... Uh, not called uh, onto the carpet for uh, their coverage of violence, despite the fact that Senator Dodd's uh, investigators felt like they, they should have been uh, at the uh, the same time. Um, Kukla writes, can you imagine what would have been said by the news media had the National Rifle Association dared to engage in such a bold advertising campaign in opposition to some ill-conceived piece of legislation? Indeed, he says, the news media had already severely castigated the uh, National Rifle Association for merely writing letters to its membership, furnishing objective information concerning provisions of proposed firearms legislation. So I'll I'll give you some of these uh, uh, ads here. There's one that shows a uh, just a hand holding a revolver. says, don't be dead wrong. Help pass the gun law. Uh, Another of a, uh, a, a revolver in the uh, palm of somebody's uh, outstretched hand, the handy death kit. 
another showing a revolver in the back of uh, a gentleman, like he's being held up, and it says, back trouble. Yeah. Uh, and one where a, a hand, close above a hand holding a bullet, take your name off this bullet, help pass the gun law. Again, this anti-gun campaign, uh, which, uh, this was about firearms registration. Nobody could have said how this bill was actually going to stop violent criminals who weren't going to register their firearms. But they were perfectly uh, uh, fine with, you know, blanketing uh, bus stops with this anti-gun message. Kukla's right. Can you imagine? And the NRA did not have a response like that because the NRA, this was the, I think this was the, the first, you know, sign of recognition of, oh, Okay, this isn't about playing fair. This isn't about hearing both sides. This is about ramming through a piece of legislation. And there were a lot of gun owners, I think, across the country, not just in the NRA, but but a lot of gun owners across the United States who were just waking up to the fact that this was now going to be a prolonged and sustained attack on their constitutional right to keep and bear arms, one that, frankly, again, has lasted uh, with, you know, some ebbs and flows for, for the last 50 years. By the way, Daley's uh, statewide registration bill failed in 1967, just like uh, Senator Dodd's uh, national legislation did, Senate Bill 1. Uh, but uh, January 3rd, 1968, the Chicago Sun-Times, I'm sorry, sorry, the Chicago's American uh, quoted Chicago Alderman A.A. Rayner Jr. Uh, as responding to the uh, mayor's gun registration uh, proposal with his own suggestion. Uh, Rayner said that he would like to see all guns taken out of the hands of citizens. If people want to hunt, he said, they could rent guns from the state, and if they just want target practice, they could use realistic toy ranges. Uh, Thwarted at the state level in 1967 and early 1968, Mayor Daley then called for the registration of all firearms owned by Chicago residents, including rifles and shotguns, uh, with uh, the city collector beginning 60 days after the passage of the ordinance. This would uh, not be the last gun control bill passed locally in Chicago, obviously. They had their handgun ban, uh, which went into effect in 1982 in Chicago and remained in effect until it was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2010. Uh, and again, 1967, that was sort of the, the the calm before the storm. At least that's what we think of as gun owners when we think about the Gun Control Act of 1968. And one of the important uh, takeaways from Robert Kukla's book, Gun Control, is that the Gun Control Act of 1968 didn't happen overnight, that it was actually the result of a prolonged and sustained effort on the part of gun control advocates across the country uh, to pass gun control legislation. And they viewed that act back then as a quote-unquote first step. It took them roughly uh, four years uh, let's say from uh, 1964 to 1968, for them to get that first step enacted into law. And that was, again, their first step. So when you hear politicians today in the House uh, talk about this first step, H.R. 8, or you hear your local politicians, your state representatives, your state senators uh, talk about these quote-unquote common sense gun safety measures that, uh, that we need to take, at least these first steps, keep in mind that what happens in 2019 is going to matter in 2020. What happens in 2020 is going to matter in 2021. This is not a fight that is going to be over with next week. This is not a fight that is going to stop 
if we uh, uh, return the House of Representatives to a, a pro-Second Amendment body, uh, this is not a fight that is going to stop if, by the way, the Senate falls and uh, President Trump is replaced by an anti-gun candidate. This fight will continue because ultimately this fight is not about inanimate objects. It's not about firearms. It's about freedom. It's about what it means as an American to be able to exercise your rights. This is about more than just the Second Amendment. This is about all of our rights as individual citizens. Thankfully, since 1967, we have had two Supreme Court decisions, the Heller case in 2008, which said, yep, it's an individual right. Nope, Washington, D.C., you can't ban handguns. Nope, you can't have these storage requirements that prohibit individuals from uh, using their firearm for self-defense in their home. In 2010, yep, Second Amendment uh, protections apply not just against the federal government, but against state and local government intrusion as well. No layer of government can infringe upon your right to keep and bear arms. City of Chicago, your handgun ban has to go away. Thankfully, we've had those successes. And later this year, the Supreme Court is actually going to take up a Second Amendment case for the first time since the McDonald case in 2010, when they will examine a a New York City gun law under challenge. And it is a law that is unique to New York City. Uh, It is a law that says if you are a a pistol uh, permit holder, and so you legally are allowed to have a pistol in your premises, you can only take that, that firearm with you to one of seven pre-approved ranges in the five boroughs. You cannot take it to your grandfather's farm outside of Utica. Uh, If you've got a weekend place near Woodstock, you can't take it there. You can only keep that firearm in your home. You can't even go to a a closer range if it's not one of the pre-approved ranges in New York City. You must keep that gun in your home, or you can only transport it to one of seven pre-approved locations within the Big Apple. There are really no other cities that have laws like this on the books. Uh, I think it is a really bizarre law. There's a part of me that kind of wonders if New York City actually isn't going to try to drop this law before oral arguments are held in in, in hopes of mooting this case. Uh, But this case could provide the Supreme Court, uh, and it does provide the Supreme Court with an opportunity. We'll see if the Supreme Court takes it. But it does provide the Supreme Court with an opportunity to weigh in once again and explicitly tell courts across the country Quit treating the Second Amendment as if it's a second-class right. It is a fundamental right of every American citizen, just like their freedom of speech, just like their freedom to worship, just like their freedom to be secure in their persons and property, and you need to start treating it as such. Because again, for decades now, we've seen politicians, we've seen judges, we've seen anti-gun advocates, if they can't write that right out of the Constitution, if they can't just scrap it completely... They will try to minimize it. They will try to confine it to as small a space as possible. They will try to make it a second-class right. They will try to turn it from a right into a privilege if they can't obliterate the ability to own firearms once and for all. So the book, again, is called Gun Control. It is by Robert J. Kukla. That is K-U-K-L-A. You can find, I think there are a couple dozen copies uh, used on Amazon right now, uh, a couple dozen more at abebooks.com. So if, if, if you are a reader, if you are a, a Second Amendment scholar as well, and you don't have a copy of this book, it is well worth a read. Uh, for the history, as well as for the quotes, from politicians and and advocates on both sides of this issue going back to the early days of the modern uh, fight 
for our right to keep and bear arms. So thank you very much for tuning in to another special edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, another past tense current events edition. We'll be back with another one before long, and uh, stay tuned because we've got more from Miss E and me on the 40 Acres. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 